that hard work that we do on ourselves, I'm very happy. I, I wish I would have figured it out when I was in my 20s, but I didn't. <laughs> there are some that do. I wish I would have. But I do think it's worth the investment in yourself, whether that's a coach, whether that's podcast, wherever that's at. But to take that time because you'll get a little nugget, you'll get something. Welcome to Empowered Leadership. We share candid conversations with successful leaders about what it takes to cultivate the leadership, life, and legacy you desire, and to do it with confidence, ease, and joy. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. And today I'm joined by Tim Winner, Vice President of Operations and Strategic Partnerships at the Technology Association of Oregon and principal of his own consulting firm, The Winner Group. Prior to joining Tao and starting his own firm, Tim has held leadership positions at notable organizations like Volunteers of America, School of Rock, and Hollywood Video, back when video rental stores were actually a huge business in the United States. In addition to his stellar leadership experience and resume, one thing I really appreciate about Tim is his self-awareness and his proclivity for self-reflection. It shines strong in today's conversation as Tim gets vulnerable about some of his biggest leadership missteps and what he's learned from those experiences. It's really an episode packed with self-reflection and lessons learned, so I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed learning. Without further ado, let's dive in. Well, as the name of the show is Empowered Leadership, the first question I always like to ask my guests is, what does empowered leadership mean to you? That's a great question. For me, empowered leadership is creating leaders throughout an organization and having leadership throughout the organization, but not consolidated within the top or not consolidated that it's within an organization that's creating leadership at all levels of the organization. If I look at it, when I just think of the word empowered leadership, it's inspiring. I think about in my own companies that I've ran and how hard and difficult it is to create leadership at all levels of the organization and to empower people to be leaders you don't have to be the CEO or the CMO or the vice president to take a leadership role in an organization. So for me, when I think of empowered leadership, I really think of creating leaders throughout an organization or through wherever it's at and empowering people to take leadership, have the courage to take it or at least want it. And I understand you have to develop it over time and there's that, but there also has to be the desire oh, yeah. to lead, right? Some people Absolutely. are like, no, not me. <laughs> and that's actually a reason I often advocate leaders offer leadership development opportunities and training to people at all levels, including individual contributors, is because it's an opportunity for people to learn is management, is leadership a track I want to go down without having them take on the responsibility and be put in a position where they're not they don't have the interest, they don't have the motivation, and they don't have maybe the alignment to the role. And I think so many organizations wait to do development until somebody's in the role, and then they find out too late that that person really wasn't meant for a leadership role because it's not for everyone. You have to want it, and you have to like to do that kind of work. 
And that's why I think with good succession planning, and if you really are investing in your people and creating leaders, those people then bubble up rather than the being selected. And as they're bubbling up, they're investing in themselves, you're investing in them, and you have a much stronger bench of future leaders within your organization. And they'll surprise you. They'll do amazing things if you create the environment for them to flourish. You'd mentioned in your answer that it's really challenging to really scale leadership in an organization. I'd love to hear what do you see as being the biggest challenges to doing that based on your experience, either as a leader, I know you've worked at some big organizations like Hollywood or now at your role at Tau, where you get to see all these other leaders and interact with leaders from a range of organizations. Yeah, I think you ask people what leadership is. And and this is why when you go onto Amazon, there's 500,000 books on leadership. So if you ask people what leadership is, you're going to get everybody's going to give you a different answer. What we always try to do or what I always try to do is create a common language around leadership that we could all agree on a platform, whatever that was. At Hollywood, we use leadership through people skills. It's an organization out of St. Louis. I had my entire training team trained and certified to teach it. We taught it at the C-level and got buy-in there. And then we rolled it out down the organization. And there were different levels, but it rolled out through the organization. So at least we were talking the same language. Not saying it was the right one, not saying there is a right one, but what I'm saying is you have, and at least it was a a baseline and a common language throughout the organization that we could use. So I think the struggle is, especially in huge organizations where you have so many different styles of leadership and still be very effective. What is the culture of the organization? Because you always have the outliers. So what's the organization? What's the culture of the organization? And I feel that the language of leadership should match that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I love that notion of a common language, right? I mean, I'm sure you talk about it all the time. I certainly talk about it all the time. That's values, right? Mm -hmm. That's one common foundation. But if we build on that, I think that's so valuable to think about what's the common framework and language that we use here, not to box people in and say, this has to be your leadership blueprint, but to give you some guardrails around what are the norms? What are the expectations? How do we talk about things here, especially when maybe we make a misstep just to help people feel comfortable, confident, able to move forward in a way with clarity. And it helps you, right? It helps you with alignment because Mm -hmm. so many companies struggle with alignment. I remember when we were rolling out leadership through people skills, one of our senior vice presidents was adamant that sometimes you just have to be a jerk. (laughs) And the facilitator was just so baffled by it. And he's like, no. And he, he used the A word, not the jerk word. And the facilitator, who is this amazing facilitator, probably the best facilitator I've ever seen, has his hands up on his board and he just goes, when do you ever have to be? And the guy starts trying to, and he couldn't come up with a real answer as to when. It was just the way he had done it. That's the way he was taught. He grew up in the automotive industry. It was a little bit, that was the way it rolled Mm -hmm. out. And he never really thought about it until that moment. 
And of course, he got defensive and blamed the messenger and all that. But what was interesting about the whole thing is he did end up deselecting out of the company because he wasn't aligned with the way the company wanted to operate. And with leadership through people skills, there's all kinds of different styles, but there was that framework and we could always call each other on it. We could always bring it up and they knew exactly what we were talking. You're really giving Q1 energy right now. And okay, I apologize. You know what? You're right. I am. Because there was that language. We knew how to talk, but we didn't want to box people to your point. We did not want to box people in. It wasn't about that. I just think when so many companies, especially today, with tighten budgets and that they farm off their professional development and they don't have it a succinct plan of the continuity of how it's going to go all the way through the order. You see a lot of senior teams go off and do retreats mm-hmm. and, and very seldom does that filter down. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it trickles down. But just being a little bit more thoughtful about how you roll it out and not taking it for granted. I think you and I both share a great deal of respect for leadership (laughs) and it's not something that you just open a can and here we go. We're, we're done. A couple things come to mind as you share those examples. And one is the, the difference in leadership between doing and being right. There's the doing work of performance evaluation, setting strategy, communicating vision, And there are tactical skills that you can go and learn from a variety of places. Mm -hmm. But then there's the being part of leadership, which is how do we build relationships? How do we show up and embody our values? How do we give people feedback? Like the example you gave around saying, hey, you're really embodying this kind of energy. Do you mind if we we take a time out and ramp that back? That being side of leadership it goes back to the common language that has to be consistent across the organization for you to have a healthy culture because a healthy culture is one in which there's clear expectations that are consistently reinforced. And so if you have people going off and doing leadership development here and then going over here, and then there's no consistency around particularly the being side, you're never going to reap the benefits. Yep. Never. And and you'll be frustrated and you'll spend a lot of money because it's just, I think people get so busy with their business and they get so myopically focused on the, the what and the how and the tactical side of the business that they forget the other side of the business. And when you look at turnover numbers or you look at the cost of recruiting and you look at all of those, what is that saying? I'm going to paraphrase it, but the CFO said, did you see the cost of our training budget? And the CEO said, yeah, you should see it, see it if we don't have it. Like <laughs> you, you won't believe the budget if we don't have that. Yeah, and, you should see the cost of our talent acquisition budget if we if we let go of training and development, which has happened to a few people that I've spoken to or worked with. They cut their learning and development budget. And then six months later, they started seeing attrition. And it's yes, because your people said they were here in part because they wanted opportunities for growth and development. You promised them that and then you cut it. And then you're wondering why they're not not yeah. sticking around. <laughs> no, and it's, it's not magic, right? It's not no. magic. It's Gallup has been doing the survey for 50 years and it mm-hmm. really hasn't changed. People want to feel 
that they're valued and appreciated. And one way to show them is money is one. Sure, their paycheck. That's almost a That's just a bar to clear. It's like your table stakes. Yeah. Yeah. And the best way to invest them in is to invest in them in their personal development. Yeah, and I I think you hit the nail on the head when you said for a lot of leaders, it's that the day-to-day doing of the business and the running of the business feels all-consuming. It's like there is always going to be another client to deal with, another product issue to resolve, some interpersonal conflict that warrants your attention. Not to mention all the day-to-day stuff you just need to be doing around managing email, managing budget, looking at reports. And I think the challenge for a lot of leaders is figuring out how do I carve out that time? And then knowing what do I do with the time that I carve out so that when I'm stepping away from the business, I'm using that time productively. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, what other guidance would you give to leaders who know they need to get out of the day-to-day, do better leadership, working on the business, not in the business? What advice would you have for them? I think it starts with trust. And you have to surround yourself with people that you trust. A lot of entrepreneurs just can't, right? They just, they can't let go because they begin to feel irrelevant within their own business. Because when they start them, they're so important to every integral part of the business. And then as they hire new people and people take on responsibilities, that gets very scary. So I think it's making sure that you have clear communication, check in on your vision and your mission. Why did you start the company? What is the purpose of the organization? What are your values? Are they being met? And you can tell that through lots of ways without being in the business, if those values are being met. And if you give yourself a checklist of, yep, that's working, that's where it's easier to let go. I always tell my teams, I always go, enjoy this moment. If we're really at our peak performance, I always go, always enjoy these moments because they're fleeting. They don't last forever. Companies change, economies change, the environment changes, things happen. It's called life. And so enjoy those moments and really absorb those, but understand that change is inevitable. And I think being a wise leader and and setting people up for that, because I think people get fat, dumb, and happy. And that's not the time to do it. So what I tell leaders that I coach are people that I talk to who are in that position is, I think you have to have your circle of trust. It's like a dashboard on your car. As long as there's no red lights, the car's okay. (laughs) You don't need to lift the hood. You don't need to. The car is okay. And it's the same thing with the company, but a lot of them, they're so used to tinkering with the engine that they tinker with the engine to tinker with the engine. And I think they have to learn to trust their dash. And that's a really hard feat. I pause with that advice because I've worked in organizations with these leaders. I've had them as clients, the ones who they've got the checklist dialed in. They've got the reporting and the data coming in and they're managing through spreadsheets, so to speak. And they're missing, especially in larger organizations, they're missing those warning signals that aren't going to show up in the macro data. Okay. It's like the smoldering fire. It's not a burning platform. And if you're 
over here in the smoldering fire is at the other end of the forest. You're not going to smell the smoke. And I do think there's a, a balancing act. You've got to get out there and talk to people. And I think the delicate balance that I always encourage people to explore is how do you get out in the organization and engage with people and build those relationships without starting to get that temptation to tinker and do the work yourself. Yes. <laughs> but you've I got to be out there getting that feedback. When I was a CEO of a company, I would have two reports. And I, that was my dashboard. And I would look at those because I knew I had a CFO looking at everything else. Yeah. I knew I had a vice president of operations. I knew that I had, but I knew what I needed to look at to be comfortable. And then, yes, the rest of my time is out connecting with people. It's a balancing act because you hear things and then you want to react and you have to know not to react because that's the worst thing you can do yeah. is fix it because <laughs> you're not in a position to fix it. I'm working with a client right now who's something we've worked on a lot is what do you do when your people come to you with problems? Because her first instinct was to solve them. Sure. And somebody would come to her and say, this team gave us pushback. All right, we're not getting the traction we need to move our strategy forward, or the meeting didn't go well. And her first gut instinct was to go into problem-solving mode. Okay, what happened? What are the choices? Let's fix it. And she was just getting so absorbed in problem-solving. She, one, wasn't getting her work done. And then, two, she was getting frustrated. She felt like, why can't my people do this? Mm -hmm. I was like, what? What kind of behavior are you reinforcing with your actions? Like when somebody comes to you with a problem and you fix it, what's the message you're giving them? It's that you don't trust them to solve their own problems. Because if you did, you wouldn't try solving them for them. And so over time, we work together on how do you take a more coaching approach and let people swim in that ambiguity for a little bit and let people test things, try them, fail in a safe place, but fail nonetheless. And it it took some real work and restraint on her part. As leaders, you can't solve people's problems. And that's something that I see happening so much today. And it just instills this mentality of learned helplessness yeah. that I think is so dangerous in organizations, especially given the amount of change in the world and the speed at which organizations need their people to be able to act, learn, and adapt without running everything up the flagpole to get a decision made by the executive team. Yeah. And probably early in her career, she was really good at solving problems. <laughs> and it comes probably very naturally. And, and it's, as are most managers and then leaders, that's yeah. why they got promoted was because they were right. great individual contributors who could solve any problem. And yep. it's like, all of a sudden, that's exactly what you need to not do. <laughs> the analogy is I always, I think of my son and it's funny because I have older children. I have a, one that's still at home and they were over for Father's Day and the older ones told the younger one, yeah, don't clean your room. Dad will eventually do it. <laughs> <laughs> And I was oh, like, no, yeah, <laughs> like, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> 
And and it's just, he goes, yeah, I know. I don't wash my car. And next thing I know, I, I come back and it's washed. And he goes, that's just dad. And I'm like, ah, oh, what am I teaching them? Why am I doing this? Because I'm really good at it. And, <laughs> and I want it done a certain way. So yes, that is the analogy, but it is. It's what we do sometimes. And it's something we have to work on. And you don't want to disappoint the person who came to you with the problem. And what I always do is I always say, hey, I'm not the best person to solve this because I'm not close enough to it. But I can see that you have a problem. But have you done this, this and this and talk to these appropriate people? And then why don't you follow up with me and tell me how it goes? So at least you've closed the loop somehow. You haven't pushed them away and it gives them an opportunity to come to you and and show a win and that they figured it out. There's nothing like working with a team that is making it happen and they're just hitting it and you see the success and success looks good on people. It's fun. I love that phrase. (laughs) It should be fun. I talk a lot in my business about three words and those are confidence, ease, and joy. And those are core to my values in part because I didn't have those for a lot of my career. I felt constantly in self-doubt. I was very, very low, authentic self-confidence. I needed validation from others. Everything felt hard, like I was forcing it. Mm. And there was very little joy because I was constantly focused on the future or ruminating on the past, which creates anxiety. And as I've reflected back on my career. I took some time off when I left my last corporate job. And I had some hard moments of truth with myself of looking back and saying, there were times where my team was rocking and rolling. And I should have been having, I could have had a lot of those moments of confidences and joy in my life. Those were available to me. But I was so stuck in my head. (laughs) So stuck in the situation and stuck ruminating on the past or stuck in anxiety about the future that I missed the beauty that was happening right in that present moment. And I think that's where a lot of leaders that I've engaged with my past self, we just miss those opportunities to really appreciate that success looks good on the team and it feels good and it creates a lot of joy to engage in because we we haven't done the work that enables us to actually see it, appreciate it, and revel in it. I pride myself on ne- I've never had a job. I'm 59 years old and I've never had a job because I don't work is my is my hobby. I derive so much joy from my work. And I feel so blessed and so privileged to have had the jobs that I've had to lead groups of people to success. And the joy part I get, I remember my big brother, he spent 33 years with a big retailer and then got the gold watch and see you later. Thanks for your service. And uh, I would ask him, I'd say, how's work? He'd say, I got 12 weeks of vacation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and he'd say, well, oh, how much do you? I said, well, I have unlimited. Oh, you don't have a, why aren't you on vacation then? Because I don't want to be. Because I like what I'm doing. Because I love what I do. My work is my hobby. I run to it. I always tell people, look, if what you do for a living is what you do in between weekends, 
find a new job, find joy. I don't care if you have to take a pay cut, but if all you're doing is in between weekends and you're just waiting for to cut out early on Fridays, that's not joy and you won't do your best work. And I, I know there was a time in my career where I was making more money than God and people really questioned my reason for leaving. And my reason for leaving was I was creatively, I was emotionally bankrupt. I couldn't mm-hmm. go in and do what I do. And I knew it. And I was like, this is miserable. I am now looking forward to Fridays. And I don't want that anymore. That's not what I want. I want to find joy. And I, I left and went into nonprofit and had great joy and ran every day to my work because the work I was doing was making a difference. We were absolutely making a difference through our social programs. And I could see the difference. Here's the question that I have for you. And I think it's a question I hear a lot. I'm super curious to know your answer. I think a lot of people would say, I am doing my best to pursue joy. And then they're not experiencing it. And they're wrestling with, is it me? Like it was me in my last jobs. There was joy to be had. I objectively loved the work, but I had some limiting beliefs, some gremlins inside me that were holding me back from accessing the joy available. So there's, is it me or is it the environment I'm in? What you described where maybe there's a values misalignment, maybe it's just not the right place for me. How have you figured out when you've made those pivotal career transitions? Is it me that's holding me back from joy or is it this isn't the right place for me and I need to change? Yeah, I think that it's yes and (laughs) is what I will say is there were moments when it wasn't the right, like I didn't like the direction or I didn't believe that I could support the mission. And that's a them. And then there were at the big one, it was me. I could have stayed on forever. They weren't, they would have kept me forever or until they went bankrupt. It was me. I found myself showing up to work late. I found myself leaving early. I found all those, those things that that was me. And I was no longer getting joy out of the work. You have to live your life with purpose. And I think that we don't do enough internal work and ask ourselves those questions because we're supposed to be happy that we have a job. We're supposed to be content. And I would even say, argue that some people tell you, you're not supposed to have joy at work. They call it work for a reason. I don't know. I've just never been that. I've always subscribed to the, and you've heard this, I've always subscribed to the two guys in the rock quarry. And one is crushing rock and complaining about how hot it is. And the other one is whistling and singing. And the guy crushing who's complaining says, why are you so happy? He goes, there's a difference here. You're crushing rock and I'm building a cathedral. And so it's your mindset. Yeah, and I think a few things that I'd pull out from what you just shared that I think are really wise words of wisdom for people in a place where things don't feel quite right. And they know a transition is warranted. They're just not sure is it a transition in me and how I'm showing up or a transition in my environment. And one is knowing how do I want to add value? Like, what's my gift? Doesn't have to be for my life, the gift or the way I'm going to add value, but for this present moment, what resonates with me? And is this a place I can do that? 
And then if it is a place I can do that, validating, can I do that in a way that aligns with my values? Because if you've got a values conflict between your organization and yourself, that's not a recipe for success. I think that's always a good reason to leave. And then if you drill down, I can add value here. I can show up in a way that aligns with my personal values. If you're sitting under that and the reason you want to leave is you consistently have things like interpersonal conflict, fear, anxiety about the future, that's when I would start to question, okay, maybe it's something you've got to change in yourself. That was my lesson from my own experience. Because this is a trite saying, but I I think true. Everywhere you go, there you are. (laughs) You're going to keep finding yourself in the same... I have a friend who kept moving teams and it was always somebody else. And at some point I said, you are the common denominator here. Yep. It doesn't mean other people don't have opportunities to improve and you are consistently finding yourself running into the same challenges. So what can you learn from that about you? Yeah, it's the company that the company has a flat tire and they keep changing the driver. Yeah. (laughs) Over here. (laughs) We do that to ourselves too, right? We think, oh, this job's going to do it. This is going to be the one. And and until you get that mindset, and I'm not, look, I'm not advocating for one way or another. I've seen people who I'm not aligned with be very successful and great. And I think that's wonderful. I don't want for me and i don't want to work in that environment but i'm not saying it's wrong it's just not a good fit for your style and that that's why to bring it full circle to our earlier conversation just the importance of self-management and self-leadership you've got to know yourself and to be able to lead yourself because if you can't do that you're going to end up in situations where you aren't going to have the conditions for success to lead others yeah, that's <laughs> perfectly said. And that, that's why it's one of my four pillars. It's that self-man, self-leadership is if you can't do that, and it's something that you can learn, it's something you can work on, it's yeah. something you can be aware of. It requires self-awareness. It requires high emotional intelligence. It requires a lot of those things. Like I've done a lot of deep work <laughs> on myself. Because I recognized it. I recognized that I had these gremlins. I recognized that these things were affecting me. I paused to go, oh, maybe you're way too cynical. And maybe, and why? And look for these opportunities. And that hard work that we do on ourselves, I'm very happy. I I wish I would have figured it out when I was in my 20s, but I didn't. (laughs) There are some that do. I wish I would have. But I do think it's worth the investment in yourself, whether that's a coach, whether that's podcast, wherever that's at. But to take that time because you'll get a little nugget. You'll get something. And I always highly recommend people. I I always say the same thing. Tiger Wood is arguably one of the greatest golfers in the world, probably has been. And he still has a swing coach who lives at his house. He built his swing coach, a condo within his complex because he needed help with his swing. (laughs) And you would arguably think that Tiger Woods wouldn't need that, but he did. And I think it's so plentiful today and it's online and it's available. I think it's much more affordable today than maybe it was before. And, And I think that 
investing in yourself is because you only got one. You only have you to your (laughs) earlier comment. Yeah. So invest in it and that looking for that self-awareness, which will then help you to self-manage is key. And I think it all ties together to empowered leadership as well, because if you're empowered, it's pretty hard not to be empowered as a leader to lead Mm -hmm. (laughs) or to encourage others to become empowered. I had this experience early in my career. I'd been newly promoted to chief operating officer, executive vice president, chief operating officer. One of my people, I promoted to senior vice president of operations and administration, which was my previous role in the organization overseeing 3,000 retail stores. And we were having our ops meeting and this newly appointed person, this was going to really date me, but you'll get the point. Rolls out that all DMs are going to get laptops. And he didn't run it by me, which was not a problem. But at the moment it was, (laughs) it was a real problem. And I, I squashed it. I absolutely like a bug. I came in hard. I came in heavy. I poked holes in it. We had spent all this money on these store communication centers where the DMs could go in and log in. I made up stories of things that were going to happen to prove my point. DMs are just going to sit back in the office. They're not going to have a reason. We got done with the meeting and I realized what an idiot. Like, why did I do that? That's not empowered leadership, right? Because I just caught him at his right at his knees, right? It took me a long time to fix that. And I had to come back because he was squeamish at that point or, or cautious. And I apologized profusely. And it was really, really funny because out of the mouth of babes, my assistant was in that meeting taking notes and we got done. And she looked at me and she goes, boy, you really blew that. And I... <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? I went, I don't know what, what came over me. I don't know. I was what insecure. What did you learn about leadership and yourself through that experience? I could imagine, but I'm curious, yeah. what were the biggest lessons for you out of that experience? It really shaped a lot of, right? Like this was all, I designed all of this and then I destroyed it all. And it came from insecurity It came from, I was threatened because what he was doing was my previous job. I wasn't comfortable in my new role. My new role was to take in that data, trust that they had done the research, that it was the right decision. I had this person with tons of energy and excitement going at it, and I should have just fanned those flames. And instead, I grabbed the biggest, wettest blanket I could and just doused it. And so, yeah, I learned about being comfortable in my own skin, in my own role. Because I was having total imposter syndromes. There's no way I was ready. There was no way I was ready to make that much money. There was no way I was ready for any of that. And then... And yet you've been replaced now in your old job. Yes. So it's now I'm out. Yes. And they're going to... needed. Yeah. And he's doing better than me. And they're going to discover that I'm no good. And right? Like we're humans. And look, all the work I've done, all the things I've done, we're still humans. And we have to be, that's why that self-awareness, that emotional intelligence. And I remember taking John out for lunch and apologizing profusely. And we have a good chuckle about it now. I'll share a few, I think, important insights from your story that came to me that might be valuable for people to hear. One is... When you really empower people, people are going to have big ideas and they're going to come out. And if you 
squash those ideas right away, they're never going to come up with a big idea again. So like you have to create an environment where you can take in and embrace ideas. It doesn't mean you're going to do them all, but people have to feel like their ideas are given a fair shot and they're evaluated on their merits and that there are opportunities to take risks. Otherwise, you're going to create that environment. You're going to start killing ideas too abruptly, and then you're going to lose all the great work that you built, creating a culture of innovation. And you'll lose those people, right? And you'll lose those those people. Sure, they're not going to stick around. I think another two other insights, one is what to do when you have that icky feeling inside. And I think as a leader, your job has got to be, if you've got that icky feeling inside or a gut instinct to come out strong, like just give yourself the gift of a pause. And so I'm going to sit with this for 24 hours and then I'll make a decision. So knowing I don't have to react in the moment. (laughs) That's number two. And the third that came up to me is just the power of repair. Like we're all going to mess up. But the fact that you two still have a great relationship today shows, I think that we're all going to make mistakes. The mistakes aren't what's important. It's what we do after them to repair. And in that situation, and the way that John would tell you is that he, Tim, you had me so prepared for that job that I was so confident I could do it. And I knew in that moment, this was a Tim thing, not a John thing. Yeah. So he, he actually was leading me at that moment. It's the student becoming the teacher moment, right? And he went on to be president of a company. I would also add to yours, I think you're so spot on about the pause. And I would say both ways, because it's bitten me in my career both ways, where I'm too excited about an idea (laughs) or where I kill an idea. And I think the pause on both ends of the spectrum is very important. Because I have gotten way excited about ideas and got way down the field and realized it was the wrong idea. And I would also, having processes fix a lot of things, (laughs) absolutely. But I also think there's that, as leaders, we have to be able to say when we were wrong. And I think humility and leadership, (laughs) if we give each other grace, and if we have that within our culture, a, a culture of grace where that's intertwined within the way that we, and it always, it's funny, we're going through a thing right now where we're reevaluating our handbook, our employee handbook. And I keep telling everybody because they're like, Tim, does it? Yes, it matters. That really your handbook is your culture. Whenever I go into a company, I always ask, can I see the handbook? Cause it's going to tell me a lot. And then I usually go get right to the bereavement policy because that's going to tell me everything about how they really view people. Because if you have a crappy bereavement policy where it gives out days based on relationships and stuff, you you just, so I would tell anybody who's listening, who's in HR, go look at your bereavement policy and redo it and do it from a human standpoint, not from an attorney standpoint. Yeah. What would you hope your kid would get? What would you hope your partner would get? What would you hope you would get if you were feeling grief? And And everybody experiences grief differently. Some people immerse themselves in work. Some people need space. And I just think that we need to be, it's not like it happens a lot. And I think that we just need to be sensitive to it. And I think it really, if you go to work for a company and you look at their bereavement policy and you go, wow, that's really thoughtful. That says a lot. I think that's the hardest part of leadership is I love 
Gallup talks about culture is the way we do things here. And a toxic culture is one in which the way we say we do things is not the way in which we actually do things. And what's so incredibly difficult about leadership is that you as, especially in a large organization, as an executive leader or a senior leader, you don't have control over how your frontline managers and your individual contributors are actually doing things. Right. But yet you're responsible. And so you have to, again, that gets back to the importance of being present, going to where your people are, building relationships, getting that firsthand view, getting feedback regularly. Are we consistently doing things in a way that aligns with what we say and what our expectations are? And when we step out of bounds, which we will because we're human, <laughs> we, right. we have mechanisms for acknowledging it, giving each other grace to your point, and then doing the repair because you can't sweep it under the rug. Yeah. Herb Keller, founder of Southwest Airlines, used to say, they asked him, an analyst asked him, they got to 400 airports. And he was like, Herb, how do you control it? You're at 400 airports. Herb said, control? I've never had control. Never wanted it. <laughs> because yeah. he knew, he knew he couldn't, those planes are in the air, flight attendants, ticket baggage handlers. And I'm sure he's rolling over in his grave today with the problems that they're having today. But I think because that, honestly, I think because they lost their way. But to my earlier point early in the podcast is things are inevitably going to change, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worst. And even if you look at it like Good to Great, which is a fantastic book by Jim Collins, most of those companies that are outlined in that book are no longer in business. It doesn't mean that they weren't great. It doesn't mean that they didn't take the journey to greatness. Something that's been a common thread in our conversation that is one of the final things I'd love to chat about is knowing that companies change and knowing what, as a company grows and scales, what's needed of a leader changes dramatically. The founder of a one or two person bootstrapped organization needs to have a very different leadership focus than the founder of a 10 person organization than the CEO of a 200-person organization, dot, dot, dot. And I'm curious, Tao intersects a lot with companies that are growing and scaling. What advice do you offer to executives who want to grow and scale their organization about how they can approach growing and scaling their leadership mm -hmm. so that they're evolving to meet the different needs at those different stages? Yeah, I think it goes back to the, it's know thyself, <laughs> know your own limitations, and have that humility to know when you need to bring somebody in who can support you in the areas that you're not good at. And find where you do add value as your organization expands and grows. I try to act to where I want to be. When I was a senior vice president, I was always looking at the C-suite and watching, and I was trying to envision, so what am I going to need to do to prepare to be there? And mm -hmm. so I think there's a certain amount of self-reflection that you need to do to prepare yourself and to prepare your company. And I like that for two reasons. I like that because it assumes positive intent. It assumes you're going to be successful. <laughs> and, and so if you have a success mindset, chances are you'll be successful. 
But be mindful of that and be mindful that it's going to change. And are you going to be prepared? And are you going to be part of the change? Or are you going to be a blocker to the change? I love that as being a, a standing reflection question leaders could ask themselves as, as they're facing key decisions or in the strategy room or weighing in on something important. Am I being a blocker of change or an enabler of change? I don't think most people ask themselves that question enough. Oh, no. And that's a really powerful question. (laughs) Are you part of the solution or part of the problem? And where are you at? Where are you blocking this because of your role, your position, your history and that? I don't know if you can develop emotional intelligence. I don't know if it's you either have it or you don't. I haven't studied it enough. I guess I was just, I I don't know, I was born with it. Like I've had this great deal of empathy my whole life. I think I've been very fortunate to always have a high degree of of emotional intelligence. It trumps my intelligence, actually. It's good to know thyself. (laughs) Right, there. (laughs) Absolutely, know thyself. There's one final question I like to ask as we uh, near the close of our time together, and that is... What is one piece of conventional leadership wisdom that you think is outdated in today's Um, world or will be outdated looking forward? I think this whole pandemic thing has created this that you don't all have to be in the same place. Like I just talked to a CEO the other day who is, I've got to get everybody back in the office. And I do think that there's a generation that understands it, but I think that was a conventional belief that we had to have these, we had to be in a meeting together. And I think that that is changing. Because I will tell you my own bias, I believe it. If I believe the best is the hybrid, I think a couple of days at home and a couple of days in the office and being together. I love spontaneous creativity. I love those impromptu meetings when somebody stops in my office to talk about something and we fix something else. I love that. But I'm a people person, so I thrive on that energy. And I think I will quickly be a dinosaur if I don't adjust that or be not taken or not be relevant if I don't adjust that. I don't know the answer to it, Alexandria, but I do think that form of communication is a staple of old school leadership. And I think you've got to look for those new ways to connect with people and be present. Yeah. And something I was reflecting on, I haven't tested this hypothesis much, so please give me your honest feedback. Something I thought about is I'm not sure how much of it is generational versus more title related. Mm. And what occurred to me as I was reflecting on why some leaders I know want people back in the office is they talk about the energy, the experience of collaboration, the spark of the room and the conversation. And as I've thought about their experience and talked to them about it, what became very apparent is, of course, you're the senior leader or among the senior leaders. So when you walk in the office, your experience is that things, the energy level lifts, things orient toward you. There's a lot of like energy and engagement, but that's by virtue of the role you play. And that because of sunflower bias, people are going to orient themselves toward you. Mm. You're the sunflower in the room. Yeah. And you don't get that when you're home because in a Zoom room, your box is the same size as everyone right. else's. Yeah. And you don't get that same level of 
sense of energy being directed at you. And I don't even think a lot of leaders realize that that's what's going on. But the average person in your team doesn't get that at work. They don't walk in the office and have a sense of energy lifting up around them. They don't have a sense of everyone turning in a meeting going, what do you think in most cases? It would be an interesting study to see if it's generational or title. That would be, that's fascinating. Where the title, yeah, it's an interesting hypothesis. On the surface, I would probably tend to agree with you because I know people my age who are absolutely, no, we're not going to be in an office. There's no reason to have the expense, blah, 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 blah. So maybe it is title. And I think it's also your life experience too. I think if you worked at a lot of remote offices and you were never, that that probably factors into it. Where do you think we'll land? I honestly don't know. And I I think it's probably also a time horizon question. I think in the long arc of time, we'll have more hybrid and remote just by virtue of... The type of work. The type of work and also the shift in the talent landscape. I think people used to feel like I had to have an employer because it was hard to go out and start your own business. Thanks to the internet, it's a lot easier to reach an audience and build a business. And I think the other factor is people used to be a lot more scared of uncertainty. But people who lived through the pandemic learned they can tolerate a lot more uncertainty and ambiguity in their life than they ever thought possible. And I think that's created a change in people's willingness to tolerate pain at work. Yep. And I don't (sighs) think a lot of executives have really thought about what that means for them and their organization, that people no longer have the same fear of uncertainty that they used to. You may not tolerate being in situations just because you say so. How about the responsibility, the community responsibility to the cities, where these offices exist, where there are other things are going to come about and happen, which are going to probably more residential within cities, more, and that will backfill where the offices filled space? I think it's a great question and two things pop into my mind. And one is our downtowns weren't working for us very well for probably the last two decades. Commuting had become hugely painful and costly for people. Housing had become really inequitable and unaffordable. It just our urban centers weren't working for most people anyway. So I think we've got to make some big changes. I don't think we have the answers. My hope is that we'll see more economic development organizations and community development organizations starting to talk about what's a different vision for the future, not how do we bring people back to a status quo that wasn't working anyway. Yeah, because parking was everything. Was, yeah. was expensive. And there's a few out there who did it, but large part, yes. Or they were ghost towns 50% of the time. Yeah. I think so. the second thing, though, that comes to mind is I think our, there's a great book for those who haven't read it. I'll put the link in the show notes called Recapture the Rapture by Jamie Wheel. And he writes about cultural architecture. That is, how do we go about building communities and culture in the modern world? And he talks about the evolution of how we've done that. And for a long time, it was religion. Then people left religion. Mm. And then it became a lot about the workplace. And I think we've, I think for a long time, we over-indexed on our community hubs and our centers being our major employers. Mm. And I think my hope is instead of saying, 
how do we enable employers to continue to fill that role? I think it's actually a good thing that we're starting to see employers take a little bit more of a backseat and shaping the communities where they are because employers are profit driven. Right. And that's not what our community should be. And I'd love to see us focusing on how do we build community and culture in ways that aren't centered around a profit driven institution. That we could go on and on about this. <laughs> you know, yeah. that but that's fascinating. And yeah, I think that for me, I think one of the things you're going to have to let go, communication, all of those things. But I, I do think you're going to have to revisit where and, and how, let's just say this, how people work. Two of my clients that I've worked with over the past few years have totally revolutionized the way they've done work in response to a lot of the trends that we're seeing, both around generational preferences about how work is done, around location, around just the dynamism in their operating environment. And what we've seen be really successful are a few things. One is really getting crystal clear on what's the value we need to drive in our organization, which sounds obvious, but most organizations aren't that clear on what are the value streams. Mm -hmm. And then two, delegating ownership over the delivery of value down into the organization and getting leaders, executives hands off how the value is delivered and allowing directors and their teams to take ownership over the how, as long as they're delivering the end value. Yep. And then we completely in both organizations have re-architected all the job descriptions so that every single person's job is oriented around what's the value I deliver. And then their managers are trained to work with their direct reports to set quarterly goals around outcomes. And then people get the ownership over when do I work? How do I work so that I can deliver outcomes? Yes. And it's it's a very different way of leading because you've got to know the value you need to deliver. You've got to do the work on your strategy to get clear on outcomes, which most organizations don't spend enough time on. And then you've got to equip your managers to really support their people and have real meaningful development conversations. And those three things are a big leap forward. But I'll share in both those cases, those organizations have almost doubled their output without increasing headcount in the last year and a half. Yeah, because they get so involved the in the act. speak for themselves. Right, because they're activity-oriented res- or- instead of results-oriented. Yeah, and it yeah. allows people to pivot quickly to reload balance because they don't have to run that decision up the flagpole every time they want to make a change. If you have every time there's a change in the operating environment, if you've got to have somebody go and say, okay, how do we respond? Okay, I got to feed that to my manager. Then they've got to bring it to the senior leadership team that meets every week. You're looking at now two week, three week delays sprinkled in throughout the year. And you multiply that out by however many teams you have. That's why Mercedes-Benz went through a huge middle management cut because they were looking at Tesla and they were going, how can Tesla make these decisions so quickly and 
produce these so quickly. They found out that the manager who was responsible for this could make that decision, did not need to take it up any layers yeah. of throughout the organization that they could just make the decision and make a change on the production line. And it blew Mercedes, their CEO, it blew his mind because that would take six months and it was happening at Tesla in a day. But when you empower the people, trust them, get the managers out of it, because they know best, they do it every day, but it requires humility, trust, all the things. Yeah. And what Tesla and Southwest and these other companies have is, is because they're new companies, they've got a really crystal clear vision around, here's what the impact we want to create in the world. Here's how we're going to do that in terms of our mission and our value proposition. And then here are the big things that we've got to do to get there. And when you have that level of clarity around what are the big things we need to do, then it's easy for people to make those decisions in the day-to-day. And I can't tell you how many large organizations I worked with when I worked at Slalom, where I mostly did strategy with Fortune 1000. I looked at their strategy and it was like, we want 2.5% profitable growth this year. Oh, we're going to do it through a digital transformation. Okay. So we went around the executive table and I said, okay, I want everyone to write down on sticky notes. What does this mean in terms of action? And we're going to put it on a wall and see. And we had the IT people saying, that means we're going to drive operational efficiency so that we can grow profitably. And then you had product people saying, it means we're going to double down on our upfront investment and our digital products so that we can drive growth. I was like, what do you see here? You are at complete odds around what it looks like to achieve growth because you don't actually have a strategy. And I think that's where I don't know Mercedes enough, but I've seen a lot of organizations do what they did, which is they go to let's make an org structure change. We'll cut the middle management out, but it doesn't, you can't manage your way out of having no strategy. And you also, Mercedes is not going to become Tesla, right? That's why I got into coaching and leadership team development, because I got tired of seeing strategies sit on a shelf. So, yeah. No, you know, it's very it's like you got one problem, which is you don't have a strategy. <laughs> and then you get a strategy and you get another problem, which is you're not delivering. Bring it back to your earlier point. People don't have the trust and they don't have the self-awareness and they don't have the structured norms and language around how we collaborate that enable them to deliver effectively. Because if you don't have those things, you can't do big transformation because you don't have the safety necessary to take risks and to put your ass on the line. Yep. Full circle. Empowered leadership. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. This was a joy. I really appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Empowered Leadership. If you liked this conversation with Tim, I encourage you to check out his own podcast, What Would Dave Do? As always, links to this and other resources mentioned in today's episode are in the show notes. To find out more on how you can improve your leadership, life, and impact with confidence, ease, and joy, please visit my website, opastrategy.com. 
That's opastrategy.com. And then please make sure to search for Empowered Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and click to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And if you enjoyed this one, please do share with a friend or a colleague. It makes a big difference. Thank you so much and have a lovely day.